The church is rocking this morning, amen? I'd like you all to do me a favor because it's something that the message will get to in a little bit that we do far too often, or it seems in my experience we appreciate something like this far too often. I'd like you all to say, shout from where you are. I know you just sung it, so it might be a little anticlimactic, but shout from right where you are, God calls me friend. Go. God calls me friend. Do you believe that this morning? I love, I love all of the biblical pictures for God, but I love the picture of God calling us friend. And I was sitting there singing it again for me the second time this morning, and I said, why is it, why is it that friend is such a powerful word? And there's probably many reasons, but the one that hit me just now is, you know, God tells us to love our enemies, to love everyone. And you can love someone almost in a way that is easier than liking someone. Have you ever thought of that? I've often joked, I'm sure glad God doesn't command us to like everyone. But that's what I love. I'm sitting there thinking, that's what, one of the things I love about that picture of God as our friend. Because to me, one of the things that says is God likes you. He doesn't just love you, he likes you, which in a way is even a greater thing in a bit. Amen? Okay, one more time. God calls me friend. I say theology, you say? Okay, that was best yet. Okay, you got an A plus for that. Please, uh, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, Jill and the kids and I went to someplace sunny. Some people can say that they could tell that I've been on the beach. But uh, we went down to Naples, Florida, or nearby to visit my folks. We had a time away. Thank you, George, for preaching last week on Sabbath rest. We were able to get some Sabbath rest last week. We spent um, one of the fun things about going away. Sometimes um, we'll go away and we'll even take a break from church. But this time my folks asked if we'd come worship with them at the church that they worship at down there. And so we went, and I was really blessed by First Baptist Church of Naples, and it's Pastor Hayes Wicker, and I was immediately jealous of his pastoral name. All right, Hayes Wicker, not a great pastor's name, and yeah, and and it was really encouraging to go and sit with that body of believers who were praising God, and oddly enough, or interestingly enough, or affirming enough, and testifying to perhaps the same Holy Spirit that is in all of God's church everywhere, I heard a message that was ringing with the importance of unity and diversity. Go figure. Isn't that cool? So as the folks down in Naples were talking a little bit about that too. But um, we had fun at First Baptist Church. I, I have a Baptist joke. Should I tell you my Baptist joke? And, and actually, it's a true story. We recently had to buy a new used car because our transmission failed. So we traveled up north somewhere, and we ended up in the driveway of a Russian Orthodox pastor and his family. And he's selling the car. He doesn't know any English at all. Fortunately, his high school daughter is trilingual, uh, Russian, English, and I forget what, and Spanish. And boy, will God use her in that gift, I'm sure, which we told her, and she blushed and said, bless you, and so it was pretty cool. 
But she's translating back and forth with this guy. And so it comes out, he's a pastor, I'm a pastor. He asks in Russian, so I've got to wait, you know, for the translation thing. It's, is, there, is there a protocol when you use a translator? Who do you look at? <laughs> I mean, have you ever? I mean, you know, you kind of look at both of them when they're talking to each other. But then when the translator turns to you to give you his words, I found myself... Is there a protocol? Is Ann Landers, Dear Abby, hints from Heloise, they cover these things? I don't know. I don't know who to look at. So I, you know, I kind of want to look at him because he knows I'm hearing what, you know, because, you know, there's the, what is it, the, the non, uh, nonverbal, anyway. Time for the benediction. Let me get on. Um, so he's translating through her, and, and, and I'm waiting patiently. What church? West Bowles Community Church, and she translates that in Russian. Sounded a whole lot like West Bowles Community Church. It's like, hey, lie, no Russian. And then he launches into this really long thing to her. I'm like, it's like wow, what is he saying? I have no idea what he's saying. And she's listening, uh-huh, uh-huh, and she's kind of getting a little bit uncomfortable. I'm thinking, oh, what's he going to say? And uh, finally... She turns to me and she kind of says, a little bit abashedly, she says, my dad wants me to ask you, is West Bowles Community Church a Christian church or a Baptist church? <laughs> That's, that one's for my new friend, Hayes Wicker. Hey, Hayes. And uh, knowing Hayes, he'd throw his head back and laugh at that one too. Anyway. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. We are looking at, as you know, the first part of this year, the essentials of the Christian faith. Not to be confused with the essentials of salvation. Different topic. Salvation and the Christian message of salvation is indeed an essential and involves essentials. But what we're talking about are the essentials of the Christian faith or Christianity. What I mean is, what are the foundational truths that define Christianity, make Christianity Christian, I guess you could say, at least from a theological or a doctrinal standpoint? What are those things, those truths, that if you start messing around with them, if you change or contradict them, well, you end up with something other than Christianity, And the reason why we're focusing on essentials, the beginning part of this year, at least one reason is, is an effort to focus and build our unity, not only in this church, but maybe it will leak out and it will affect our unity with believers from other churches too. Cross-denominational discussions, for example, or even, you know, a discussion with the person sitting next to you on some things, it seems... You know, often we spend a lot of time discussing things that we don't all agree are true. And while those moments can be and should be, you know, times where iron sharpens iron, where we might learn from each other, uh, those moments can also be divisive, you know, when we can't agree on anything. You know, something in us wants to find agreement and we consistently can't, if that's all we're focusing on, it can feel like, well, okay, you know, it's like divisive, given our makeup, I guess. And so we're spending time in this series, I thought, let's 
Let's focus on the things that we can all agree on, those essentials of the Christian faith where we can find common ground with our brothers and sisters, our fellow family members in Christ. And so, so far we've talked about God, how we know him, what he's like, and what he does. We're going to shift the focus a little bit this week and next and talk about people or humanity. What does what does the Christian faith say about human beings or humanity? What common ground essentials are there anyway when it comes to humanity? And for the answer, we turn first to legendary theologian, former tennis champion, Andre Agassi, of course. I figured, you know, what better way to get the ball rolling? You know, I kind of wanted to raise a racket. (laughs) What better way to serve up our topic? Start volleying back and forth? Anyway. (laughs) All right. I didn't hear that. I think I'm glad I didn't hear that. Um... What about this topic of humanity? I came across an article actually uh, several weeks ago and I tucked it away to look at it again for this sermon. And uh, interestingly enough, God said, yeah, I think uh, that's something that we can use. At least um, I think it's helpful. And I came across the article in, oddly enough, Residential Design and Build Magazine, which I don't make a habit of reading, but for whatever reason, I came across this article, and the article, the article is trying to give advice to corporations when it comes to public relations. And as I read the article in particular, I'll read portions to you in a minute, I thought, hmm, you know, that's interesting. God wants, God wants to relate to the public too. He wants to relate to people. I wonder if this corporate advice might be helpful at all to the church. See what you think. Here's a bit of the article. In 1990, the article goes, when Andre Agassi was at the start of a career that lifted tennis popularity to new heights, advertising execs for Canon cameras invested millions in an ad campaign with Agassi delivering the now famous line, maybe not so famous line, No, Just Do It is Nike. You guys don't remember. You will as soon as I say it. Image is everything. Remember? You ever heard the saying, image is everything? (laughs) It's all going downhill from here. He got out there with his hair. That's when he had all the hair. I know I'm getting old enough. Some of you weren't born in 1990. He was bald. He shaved all his hair off in his later years. And he was very flamboyant and hit the ball really hard. One of the first players to really bring hitting the ball hard. You know, uh, Jimmy Connors, I suppose, did too. But he came out there and he entered an ad uh, slogan 
with Canon, and images everything was his big thing, this kid. It was an intriguing slogan, this um, magazine continues to say. Was it meant tongue-in-cheek, or as a play on words, since the product was the camera? Agassiz was bold enough to take the heat for saying images everything. As the showy young upstart who had yet to prove he had the substance to back up his playful claim. Like Agassiz, the article continues, you do not have to wait until you have the credentials to create an image worthy of who you are. It's okay to develop an image of success and then build your company to live up to that image. Hmm. Then the article goes on to give a checklist that uh, uh, corporations can look at to see once if they need to improve their image. Companies need a company logo, a website, uh, advertising, signage, field personnel with company shirts and company vehicles with a logo, site management, uh, office appearance that should be neat, clean, bright, and cheery, it says. And then the article closes this way. You control your company image. If it's something you've never given any thought to, then use this checklist to see if you need to clean house. Interesting. What do you think? Does that slogan, image is everything, translate to some sort of essential of Christian faith? It sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Saying Christianity is about image. And if we're talking about form over substance, then yes, that's certainly not Christian. Jesus told many parables emphasizing substance over form when it comes to following him, right? And he rather vehemently came down hard on some hypocrites who talked the talk but didn't walk the walk. So in that sense, image is everything is about as opposite as it gets when it comes to an essential of Christianity. But in another sense, image is everything very accurately describes something essential about the Christian faith. The article hints at this other sense of this slogan when it says it's okay to develop an image of success and then build your company to live up to that image. Likewise, is it okay for a Christian to have a developed sense of an image for success as a guide or goal or even an encouragement for living? And if so, what's that image for a Christian? Your Bibles are open to Genesis 1, and I'll just read two verses beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And so people are created in the image of God. And my friends, that's an essential truth in my opinion of the Christian faith. We are all created by God in the image of God. And in that sense, our image is everything because our image is by God and of God who is everything. There are two parts to that, created by God and in the image of God. I want to spend most of our time on that second part, created in the image of God. But let me say one thing about the first part, created by God, briefly. Essential to the Christian faith is that God created humanity. The Bible leaves no room for debate on this fact. Fellow Christians cannot agree to disagree over the truth of creation. And yes, when it comes to creation, we can debate such things as the age of the earth, the length of those days in the creation account. Were they 24-hour days? Were they metaphorical days representing a longer period of time? I don't know for sure. Either way, the Bible is still true. I don't know if anyone can know for sure the answer to that question of how long those days were. We can all ask God one day when we see him face to face if we still want to know. But for now, we can debate the age of the earth and agree to disagree over it. We can also debate to what extent God created instantaneously or over time. I call it poof or process. To what extent did God create by poof? Maybe there wasn't a noise. I don't know. And to what extent, perhaps, did God use a process? And we can debate that as well and agree to disagree over it. Maybe we'll talk more about that sometime. But essential to the Christian faith is that however God did it exactly, it was God who did it. God created humanity by poof and or by process. In six 24-hour days or six metaphorical days, it was God who did it. Not random chance. Not by itself. Or because of anything separate or independent somehow from God. That's not even possible given God's eminence, you recall, his presence and constant involvement in all creation. An essential we looked at a few weeks ago. But however he did it and over what period of time, the essential is that God created humanity, period, or exclamation point, depending on your mood. God did it. And this fact is important because the fact that there is a creator of humanity, someone intentionally made us, made human beings, well, it means there's a purpose for humanity as well. There's a reason that God made people. We have purpose as the prized and valued creations of the creator. By the way, that has to be that has to be one of the most depressing things about evolution that state schools teach our kids all happened without God. You know, if that's true, if that all happened without God, well, then people have no intended purpose at all. We just happened. Nothing or no one intended us to happen. So our existence is for no purpose at all. We're some sort of freakish accident. And our One nation under God continues to teach our kids in school that they are not under God, but rather just 
happened along somehow by chance. And then we wonder why our youth in particular, but many adults too, struggle with their identity and purpose in life. After we teach them in grade school that they're just a freakish accident. The more reasonable view, in fact the more scientific view, the best explanation by standards of human reason is the Christian essential that God created people. And since we are created, we have meaning and purpose, which we'll see in a minute, includes caring for creation, as we just read in Genesis, and ultimately bringing glory to God by freely choosing him and following him as Lord of our lives. So one common ground essential this morning is that Christian, uh, of the Christian faith is that people are created by God. Second, People are not only created by God, but according to Genesis and other scripture, we're indeed created in the image of God. That's the other part of the essential this morning. We're created in the image of God. What does that mean exactly? That people are made in the image of God. Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly. And so we're left to make our best educated guess. And as you might guess, many over the centuries have given their opinions as to what it means that people are made in the image of God. Have you ever thought about what that means? It's not that odd a topic for many Bible studies, or maybe you've just thought about it on your own. What does it mean that people are made in God's image? What does it mean? If someone asked you, hey, what does it mean that I am made, that you are made in God's image. What's the first response that comes to your head, that comes to mind? What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? Chances are that your opinion will fall into one or more of three categories or views, what theologians have labeled the substantive view the relational view, and the functional view. Yes, theologians give us rather cryptic categories, but you know they can help us sort through it once we understand what they're talking about. I say theology, you say? All right. Yeah, it's kind of gone downhill from the... God calls me friend! But as I give you, I'm going to give you a very brief overview of each of these. See where your view matches up. If you've got one in your head, if someone said, hey, what does it mean that you're made in the image of God? See where your one, see, see where yours line up. The substantive view holds that the image of God is some definite characteristic or quality within the makeup of humans. It's something that a human being is. One common example is a person's ability to reason has been suggested as what it means to be made in God's image. Or our exercise of free will is innately human. That falls in this category as well. A few have even suggested some physical or bodily image might describe the image of God, but 
Outside of the Mormon church, not many, if any, hold to this view since God is spirit, but it comes up once in a while. In case you're studying, you'll recognize it. Is your view of the image of God substantive? Is it something that the human being is? Or maybe it's more along the lines of a relational view that says the image of God is the experience of relationships. When we experience relationship, we are engaging in, experiencing in the very relational image of God. And so like a relationship, the image of God is something a human being has. Relationships are the experience of relationships. We, like God, can be a partner, can be in a meaningful relationship. Let us make them, God says in context. The us, perhaps a reference, a very early one, to God's Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then God says he made us in his image male and female. Interesting. In Hebrew, male and female can be synonymous with husband and wife. And so in the context of this image making, God bothers to mention that most intimate of human relationships possible. Is that what it means to be made in the image of God, that this idea of relationships with God and others? Or maybe what you thought of, maybe your view is, is more like the functional view that says that the image of God consists in something a person does. The most common one there is like have dominion over creation, our stewardship or care over creation is something we're to do. Most common example, because it too is right there in the context, the immediate context of Genesis 1, this idea that we're to have dominion over, care for creation. So where does your opinion land, and you know, which one is the right one? Well, there are strengths and weaknesses with each view. Theologians have debated it for centuries. No single view has won out entirely. But the substantive view has been the dominant one during most of the history of Christian theology, the idea that the image of God is something that we are or that a human being is in our makeup. And I'll lean there if you pressed only because, look, if when you think about it, if we or something in us is the image of God, then both the relationships that we have and all we do should follow. So, so really the relational view and functional view, the way I think of it, flow out of the substantive view, it seems to me. But our task this morning is not to evaluate these different views, and it's okay to think, well, thank God for that in response to that. <laughs> because the comparative analysis of these views is pretty tedious stuff. But I'll rush to the end, at least my conclusion at least. In the end, I suspect they don't really compete after all. As I've mentioned, all three have something valuable to add at least to the truth or the idea of what it means to be made in the image of God. So instead of picking one of these views, I'm going to offer you one of my own. It it combines them, really, but it's an approach I, I haven't seen taken before, but I found it helpful, and, and my hope is that you do, too. And it's an approach where, where I think Christians might be able to find common ground on the essential of people being made in the image of God. 
To do this, I need to take you back with me briefly and look briefly at those characteristics of God we discussed a few weeks ago. Remember those, those attributes where we talked about God is great and God is good? So I thought, after all, if we're made in the image of God, then it's God that we were made to be like. So what's God like? Well, we talked about a few weeks ago, God is great, so we were made to be great. God is good, and if we're made in his likeness, we were made to be good. We were made in the image of our great and good God, in other words. You see a list uh, on the screen of those greatness characteristics of God that we looked at before. And while some of these we can't fully be, for example, we talked about God being spirit and one ramification of him being spirit is he could be everywhere at the same time all the time. And while each of us or even all of us couldn't do that on our own, Maybe what it means to be in the image of God or like God is, well, we too are made with that spiritual awareness, that spiritual side. We're spiritual beings. We have a soul. And as far as being everywhere all the time at the same time, no, maybe we can't accomplish that individually, but you know, as the kingdom of God grows, as more and more Christians go out, As Christians take the time to help people and be with people and be where they're needed, boy, we can start to look a whole lot like that image of God of being where we're needed as God's partners there, can't we? And maybe being made in the image of God involves that personal relationship that we talked about. And maybe being in the image of God involves that we cherish life. Life is valuable as God is life. And we think in infinite, eternal terms when it comes to life and our existence because we know that when we die, it's only a little step through a door and we're going to continue on forever. So we're aware of that, like God being made in his image. And we ought to be constant or unchanging when it comes to the witness of God and the love of Christ in our lives. We also looked at what it meant to be For God to be goodness, we talked about those goodness characteristics of God. And so being made in God's image means that like God, we were made to be and have something in us that helps us to be morally pure. We are people of integrity, and we're people of love. See, I think that's what it means, or it's one way to look at what it might mean to be made in the image of God. We can be those things with God's help because we are made in that image. Because we're made in the image of God, then we are most human when we are those great and good things like God is. If we give ourselves over to God because we belong to him, Jesus tells an amazing illustration of what it means to be made in God's image. Someone once asked Jesus whether they should pay taxes to Rome. Remember the story? So Jesus asked the guy, hey, you got a coin? So the guy digs a coin out of his pocket. He says, 
Here it is. And then Jesus says, whose picture is on it? And the guy goes, oh. That's a paraphrase. You won't find, oh, in Mark. Because Jesus has got him. Why does he got him? As a God-fearing Jew, if it's a God-fearing Jew, if it's a Pharisee, for example, which it may be, we're not entirely sure. Herodians are there as well. He shouldn't have a Roman coin in his pocket. It has an image on it. God prohibited image. So the, <laughs> Jesus is a brilliant teacher. Hey, should we pay taxes to Rome? Have you got a coin? Yeah, I got one right here. Whose image is on it? Oh. <laughs> Caesar's. Huh. The guy just showed everyone in the crowd where he stands when it comes to obedience before God. And then Jesus says what? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. Yes? So by implication, why does that coin belong to Caesar? His image is on it. His image is on the coin. Give it back to him. And give to God what is God's. And in the context of image, why are we God's? Why do we belong to God? Because we are stamped, we are made in his image. That's the punch of that teaching. We belong to God because we're made in God's image image. And when we give ourselves to God, when we allow ourselves to belong to God, that image that we bear of God is more fully realized. We become more fully human. Two PSs this morning, and then I'll let you go by way of application, or what does this mean to our life today? I, there are many things it means, but I've picked these two. First, speaking of Jesus, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but in his humanity, at least, Jesus also was made in the image of God as a fully human being. Yes, I know he was and is also God, but linger with me a bit on his full humanity as a human being, Jesus also was made in the image of God, in his humanity. And his image of God was fully realized. Why? Because he gave himself completely to God. And so, if we too want our image of God to be more fully realized, well then we should pattern ourselves, pattern our lives after Jesus, right? How? By taking on his yoke, the Bible calls it, and Jesus summarizes his yoke as love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. It's Shema again. Go figure. And when we give ourselves, commit ourselves with God's help to that all-encompassing love of him and others, we are most completely human as we were designed in the image of God, just like Jesus who gave himself fully and completely in obedience to God and self-sacrifice to others, being made in God's image. 
Last PS. What implications does our being made in God's image have for our witness to other people? How should we treat others? Well, my goodness, if people are made in the image of God, they are of immeasurable value, aren't they? They're made in God's image. Well, tell them that. Can you imagine? Imagine an evangelistic approach that engages someone who doesn't yet know God. Right? We'll pick George here. Hi, George. Hi there, Todd. How are you? I'm doing all right. Good. We're going to do lunch again Thursday? No, I'm not going to preach at you. Okay. Let's say George doesn't know the Lord. And whatever it is, through the course of our relationship, it comes time where we want to tell him. I know we always want to tell. We always want to show and tell what it means that God loves us. But one great place to start if someone is honestly interested in what Christianity is all about or what God is all about, one great place to start is, you know what my God thinks, George? You know what what one truth of Christianity is? That you are made in the very image of God. He made you to be great. He made you to be good. And he believes you can do it. It's in you. You're made in his image. In the image of the great and the good God. In his image he made you for greatness and for goodness. He believes in you. Hallelujah! I grew up, and one of, my, one of my theological heroes, he still is, is John Calvin. John Calvin has an amazing window into truth. Not the only one, and he doesn't have the corner of the market on truth. No single human theologian does, aside from Jesus in his full humanity. But one thing that Calvinism makes sure that we understand is that sin is a very, very serious problem. Which is a valuable teaching, and we need to know, because it is. One danger of looking only through that window is that the problem becomes so heavy, so dire, is that even in our evangelistic approaches, it always carries that condemning feeling. And I know that we want to emphasize sin to emphasize how far God has lifted us up and it's not of our merit at all. I understand that. But we need to be careful that we don't hammer so hard. You are totally depraved. You stink. There isn't any part of you that isn't tainted by sin and self-interest. You suck. (laughs) 
You need to do better. Love more. Memorize more scripture. Turn your life around. Heaven's sake. Come on, do better. Not good enough. Not good enough. Not good enough. You want a sobering task? Spend six years, as I recently did, teaching teens about God and ask them the message that they received from their church in terms of their worth. Nine out of ten. I'd go nine and a half out of ten is more accurate, but you can't have half a person. Nine out of ten of those kids. Not good enough. Do better. Please tell your kids. Tell people. You're made in the image of God. It's in there. You are made to be great. God believes in you. The one who made the 40 billion trillion stars. I know I've used that before, but I can't find a better one. And that dad is dated. Count to 40 billion. And then when you're done with that, do it again a trillion times. That's how many stars God knows by name. And that God made you to be great and to be good in his own great and good image. Now there's a problem that we'll talk about next week. It's a little word with I in the middle called sin threatens to get in our way all the time. But I wanted to separate those two because I think often what gets buried, the image of God that is in us, that God made us in, and its ramification gets buried too quickly sometimes by sin. Yes, sin is a terrible problem. And Jesus came to get rid of that problem. Why? So that the image of God that God created us in can be more fully revealed, unfettered, undaunted by sin. But it's still there in us because God made us that way. And when we don't act out, when we're less than fully human, at least the fully human being that we can be, when we're less than that, when we're less than great, when we're less than good, it's because sin gets in our way. Next week we'll talk about what we can do when sin gets in our way, but this morning we'll pause here. We're made by God in the image of God. We're made for greatness and for goodness like God himself. 
In that sense, God's image in us is indeed everything. Everything truly great and truly good is in there. And with God's help and only through God's help, we can find it again. In 1992, after two years after his famous Canon commercial advertising campaign, Andre Agassi won his first major at Wimbledon. In his career, he won 870 tennis matches, 60 titles, including eight majors and a career grand slam. His prize winnings alone totaled $31 million, a drop on the bucket compared to his endorsements, and I'm sure a lifelong supply of Canon products. It's one of the most successful advertising campaigns in the history of advertising. All great accomplishments for a tennis player. Agassi followed his brash images everything talk, however tongue-in-cheek. He ended up walking the walk in tennis at least and in some other areas of life as well. But all that Andre Agassi accomplished on the tennis court, it pales in comparison to the greatness and the goodness that believers can achieve given the image of God talk in Genesis. If we too would walk the walk together with God, with God's help, of course, of being more fully who we are, the image bearers of our great and our good God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it's hard for us even to put our minds around seriously that someone as great and self-sufficient and totally good as you would love enough to make us in that image, your image, your likeness. Oh, how great a love, Father, you have for us. Thank you for that. Father, sometimes the devil attacks us with thoughts of can't. Can't be who you want us to be in Christ Jesus, your Son. Not worthy to be the temple of the Holy Spirit unable to partner with you in teaching or showing anybody anything. Oh, Father, help us to trust you. Help us, Father, to have a sense of appreciation and even a humble confidence that, you know what? You love me enough to make me in your image, and by your help, O oh God, I'll do the best I can to be that image bearer of your greatness and your goodness to a world that is just desperate for it. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. Would you stand, please, for God's benediction as chance would have it, and I know it's not chance, it's the Holy Spirit. If you believe in coincidence, then you follow a different God that I read about in the Bible. As chance would have it, the benediction I chose is the same song that we sung or heard played at least twice. It's from Psalm 8. 
And I'd love for you to hear again those words of Psalm 8, a psalm of David, as God's good parting words to us. David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.